This time we're going to be giving our attention to God's Word as we turn to 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26 through chapter 2, verse 5. So we're going to be straddling a couple of chapters. 1 Corinthians 1, 26 is where we'll start, and that's on page 952, and then running into 953 of the ESV Pew Bibles. This is part of our relatively new series called 1 Corinthians, A Roadmap for Raw Christians. And you remember we called it this because the believers in Corinth were first-generation Christians. They had just come to faith, and they were raw. They were still in a world and a culture that was steeped in sexual immorality and idolatry, and it was still all around them. And they had some of that coming in with them as, as they came to faith in Christ. And so 1 Corinthians really is a roadmap for these raw Christians on how to get from where they are, just starting off in faith as, as a raw Christian to a faithful believer. Before we turn to God's word, let's go to prayer together. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we ask your blessing on the proclamation of your word. We acknowledge the privilege of being able to come before and gather as a church, come before your word, and uh, we acknowledge fully that this is um, inspired, inerrant, infallible. Lord, we ask that we would be able to understand this passage and apply it. And we ask that you would teach us what we need to, to understand, help us to apply what we need to apply, and in all things give you the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Tanner was in kindergarten, and the school year had just started, and the teacher decided that she was going to do what she did every beginning of the year. She was going to test their readiness in writing. So she had them take out a piece of paper and a pencil, and she told the class, all right, everyone write your name on the piece of paper. And so the students began writing, and she walked around and did a spot check of all the students, and she saw the usual thing. She saw some students writing their names in all capital letters. She saw some students with letters that were backwards, so a B became a D, or a D became a B. She'd seen that before. And then she came to Tanner, and Tanner was holding his pencil with a, a clenched fist, very, very tight. The pencil was straight up in the air. This hand was kind of curled around like this, and then the other hand was another clenched fist on top of it. And this is how he was writing his name, hunched over and, and, and gripping it. And she said, Tanner, Tanner, whoa, whoa, whoa. She said, relax. And she took his hand off and the other hand off, and she, says, like, she said, like this. And she... She put his hand together with the pencil in the right spot, and he looked at her and immediately went like this again. She said, no, 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 here, let me help you. Here, not that tight, here. And she, she spent a few moments trying to correct him, but he kept going back to this ultra-contorted, two-handed death grip on the pencil, and she wasn't able to break him of it in that short time span. And that's when she realized, this is going to take some time. Because... For one reason or another, this is how he has learned to write. He could get the letters out on the paper, but she thought there's no way he's going to be successful in school or in life if he continues with this. He's going to have to unlearn how to write. 
Before I can teach him the right way, I'm going to have to teach him, I'm going to have to have him unlearn how to write. The raw Christians in Corinth had learned worldliness. And Paul realized at the outset when he started to hear these reports that he was going to have to have them unlearn worldliness. Remember, these were first generation raw Christians. This was all they knew. And they were still in this same idolatrous, sexually immoral culture, and it was normalized. Everyone around them was doing it. Everyone around them was living. We compared it to, it would, it's just as normal as, as filling your car up at the gas station or going to the grocery store. Nobody blinked an eye or, or raised an eyebrow at it. It was just the way things were. But now they were in Christ. And because they were in Christ, they were going to have to unlearn that worldliness. So in our passage this morning, Paul is going to continue to address this issue of worldliness. It started off by talking about those divisions. Remember they had pledged their allegiance to these different teachers based on superficial worldly criteria like who was the most fervent in speech or who was with, spent the most time with Jesus or who was the first one to teach them. All these things that were personal preferences, worldly external things that ultimately didn't matter. That's how they had approached who their favorite teacher was. But the root problem is worldliness. And Paul is still teaching on that. He's having them unlearn that. And so he's bringing in new arguments. It's almost like he's, he's got these new data points that he's bringing in one after another, just like it was going to take the teacher a long time to get Tanner to, to unlearn this. Paul realizes, I need to bring in multiple pieces of evidence to, to show them that they need to unlearn worldliness. So that's what we have this morning. Paul teaching on unlearning worldliness with, with multiple data points. So this is our passage, 1 Corinthians 26, uh, 1.26 through 2.5. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul is teaching them to unlearn worldliness. So the first new data point, the first new piece of evidence that he brings in are themselves, the Corinthian believers. And he's telling them because you are in Christ, you now need to, to unlearn all that worldliness that you have picked up your entire life. So he begins, verse 26, consider your calling. In other words, consider what it was like for you, what your life was when God called you. What was your life situation? When, when God called you to Christ. 
He says, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, worldliness. Not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth. He's saying, you've been using worldly standards to, to judge the speakers and the teachers that have, that have ministered to you. What if we applied those same worldly standards to you? What if God operated like that? What if God chose you based on things like strength and power and, and wisdom and noble birth and all those worldly things? Do you think you would have been chosen? Wise, intelligent, learned, powerful, influential, wealthy, decision makers in the culture, both formal and informal. Noble birth coming from prominent families. He's asking these raw Christians, did God choose you because you were all those things? Did God choose you because you were wise and smart and on top of the world and a VIP and wealthy and having achieved great things in the world's eyes? Did God call you on worldly standards? And the answer is, of course not. No. Because God does not operate that way. And neither does the church. And neither shall you unlearn the worldliness that you've picked up. And then in verse 27 and 29, but, in contrast to choosing on worldly standards, but God chose, you notice he repeated that three times, emphasizing divine sovereignty and the choosing. God chooses, God calls. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not. So the Corinthian church members, these raw Christians, are examples of how God chooses people who look weak in the world's eyes. They, they look lowly, they look despised according to human standards. He uses the phrases, even things that are not, that could also be translated as the things that are nothing or the nothings. The nothings in a society, the nothings in a culture. Paul says, like you. Not, not the somethings, not the big dogs, the, the nothings. Those that are considered insignificant. And, and it really doesn't have to mean the very, very lowest, because, you know, he says, not many of you, which means some were. Some were of noble birth, some were, some were wealthy, some were strong and wise, but most weren't. Most were just the average, you know, John and Jane. Just unremarkable people going about their business and their daily lives. He chose the nothings of this world to bring to nothing things that are. And at this point, we need to understand Paul is not teaching or, or talking about social revolution. Let's get that out on the table. When we see this language to bring to nothing the things that are and to shame the wise and shame the strong, Paul is not saying that God is exclusively and only the God of the downcast and the, the the, the poor and the, and the needy and the, and the disenfranchised or whatever other, other label you want to put on, on the, the low in society. It's, it's not that those on top, the wealthy, the strong, the, the smart, it's not like those are all the bad guys and, and you're all the good guys and, and really what God's doing here is taking the, those on top and throwing them down on the bottom and he's taking everybody on the bottom and throwing them up on top that is not what he's saying here at all. It's not um, a roadmap for social upheaval or revolution. It's a roadmap for taking raw Christians and putting them into faithful disciples of Jesus Christ. 
In other words, he's, he's not saying that God chose the nothings so that he could make them into worldly somethings. That's, that's not it. What he is saying when he develops these two categories and contrasts them and says that God chose the nothings to, to bring nothing the things that are, he's saying that by choosing the nothings of the world, he's rendering all those other things, wisdom, intelligence, wealth, power, noble birth, he's rendering them obsolete. He, he's, he's rendering them irrelevant. He's, he's nullifying all those differences. He's saying that the cross is level ground. In other words, it, it doesn't matter if you're all these things. God chose whom he wants to, and it looks like in the Corinthian church, he chose a lot of the nothings, a few of the somethings, according to the world, but mostly nothings, as a, as a demonstration that those things don't matter in Christ. In other words, worldly importance and clout does not translate into spiritual importance and clout. It just doesn't work that way. And we have to wonder, are they starting to get it? Are they starting to unlearn worldliness as he talks about some of these things? Verse 29 makes his point clear, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. We all stand on level ground. There, there's no one of more importance or, or less importance. There's, there's not a top and a bottom. We're, we're all in Christ, and none of those things matter anymore. So when Paul says, consider your calling, brothers, he's giving them another example, another data point. He's saying, think about when God called you. Think about your station in life. That should inform you. That should tell you that the worldliness that you're hanging on to and that you haven't unlearned yet, that doesn't apply here. God doesn't operate like that. And neither should you. Following Christ is not compatible with worldliness. It just doesn't work. And he understands. That's why he's being patient with them. He understands that they're coming in raw. That's all they know. And so he's giving them all these examples. Are you relaxing your grip yet on that, on that worldliness? Verse 30, And because of him you are in Christ Jesus. Whether you were a nothing of society or whether you were something in society, uh, it doesn't matter. Either way, it was God who called you, and you are now in Christ Jesus. And do you see how he's, he's refocusing, redirecting them back into the spiritual things that matter? You are in Christ. You must unlearn things like power and money and influence and noble birth and intelligence and strength. You must learn repentance, righteousness, sanctification, redemption. So Paul talks about Righteousness. He's, he's saying, you're in Christ now. You have the righteousness of Christ. God has imputed the righteousness of Jesus Christ to you. Through faith, you have been declared legally justified in God's sight. That's you. You're in Christ now. That's what matters. Sanctification. You are now in a state of holiness. God has, has rendered you and has, has made you fit for service. He has, he has rendered you set apart in his sight, ready to serve and work for the king. Redemption. Redemption. He reminds them of redemption. This, this uh, brings to mind deliverance from slavery that's shaded by Israel's history. Remember, they were delivered out of Egypt, out of slavery. That would be the Old Testament reference point. But of course, here in the New Testament, it means being delivered from slavery to sin. Believers 
as fallen image bearers with a sinful nature have been delivered, they've been freed from bondage to sin, its power, its penalty. And in Christ, they've been freed because Jesus Christ has paid the ransom price by his own blood. Colossians 1, 13-14 says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So when Paul uses that phrase, whether it's here in 1 Corinthians or somewhere else in the New Testament, when we see the phrase, in Christ, that's shorthand for all those things. Righteousness, sanctification, redemption, salvation. If you are in Christ, you are saved. You are one of his. And he's telling them, you are in Christ. Nobody, nobody gets to boast in themselves. There's no people group, there's no social group, there's no race group, there's no economic group, there's no intellectual group, there's no cultural group group that gets to boast about being better or worse than, than anyone else. All are equally sinners, and all are equally in need of a savior. The world divides along those lines. The, the world is dividing along those lines with a vengeance right now. The church does not. Chapter 2, verse 1, here's another data point. Paul's preaching and teaching. And I, when I came to you, brothers, Paul's saying, All right, I've had you consider yourselves when you come, came to Christ. Now I want you to consider myself, my, my preaching and teaching. I want you to consider my apostolic ministry to you. I did not come preaching to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. So testimony of God means the gospel, the totality of what what Paul was bringing to the church, everything he taught. Not with lofty speech, eloquence of words, high-sounding doctrine. We, we touched on this last week. I think we get the picture. Paul was not a professional speaker. He did not act like the professional speakers. He didn't proclaim the gospel with an aim to impress or wow his listeners. That wasn't his goal. He wasn't preaching for applause. He wasn't fishing for compliments. We're putting on a show. And the message itself seemed fairly repetitive. The next verse, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So Paul purposefully chose to preach and proclaim the same thing over and over and over again. Remember in the first century, these other professional speakers, the reason they made money is because they went around entertaining people. Remember, they, they, don't, they didn't have TV, they didn't have streaming to, you know, networks and things like that. This is where they went to be entertained. Imagine paying for the same show over and over and over again. That really wouldn't work. That's Paul's strategy. I'm just going to preach Jesus, no matter where I'm at, no matter who my listeners are, I'm going to preach Jesus, and that's it. So he's basically preaching the book of Romans, the content of, of, of Romans, essentially, over and over again. He's explaining that Jesus is the Christ, the promised Messiah. He's pointing to Jesus and his work on our behalf as the second Adam. He's calling for repentance and faith in Jesus. He's enumerating the spiritual benefits found through faith in Jesus. He keeps coming back to Jesus over and over again. So if, if people were looking to be entertained, they would have been disappointed when they got to Paul. He kind of garnered the reputation of being a one-note Charlie. He played the same song every time. It's the gospel. So Paul is showing them that he does not practice worldliness. 
in his apostolic ministry, he's not acting like these other professional speakers. Modeling is a powerful tool. Paul uses this in his ministry. He models what it looks like to have unlearned worldliness. Another data point, verse 3, Paul himself, not his preaching and teaching per se, but the person Paul, and I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. So we've got two things here, weakness, fear and much trembling. So let's take weakness first. This could be several things. There have been a lot of people that have speculated, well, what does he mean by weakness? Okay, well, it could be physical weakness, some sort of disease or chronic disabling uh, health issue. That could have been part of it. Uh, there's, there's some evidence to think that that might be part of it. Payment. Remember in Corinth, he purposefully chose not to receive payment for his ministry. This was a big deal because legitimate speakers got paid. So by not taking payment, people were wondering, well, well what's wrong? Uh, you're not good enough to get paid? Or you're not worth it? Or there's people who won't pay you? Is that it? I mean, that, that might have been an issue. He, received, he refused payment. Persecution. In general, Paul did not enjoy um, a broad uh, <laughs> base of support. Uh, there were several times in this ministry where people were very actively working against him. That might have been part of it. His appearance. It, it seems as if Paul's stage appearance was not very appealing. He wasn't very camera friendly uh, to, to the people. He didn't look that impressive. We have a, a description of Paul from about 160 AD. There's no reason to doubt it. And it says this, quote, a man small in stature, bald-headed, crooked in legs, with eyebrows joining, nose rather long. So we've got this kind of short, maybe bow-legged, balding, unibrow thing going on, pointy, long. I mean, this, this is not a guy that looks like confidence and, and you know, movie star looks. So that might have been part of it. Or a combination of all those things. That could have been what he meant by weakness. And then there's much fear and trembling. Once again, there's a lot of speculation on what he means by fear and much trembling. For example, afraid of new ministry settings. Uh, afraid of large crowds. Uh, afraid of being without a co-worker, ministering with them. Afraid of that, that God has given him such a large task. Or fearful, fearful for his own safety. Or afraid of his own shortcomings as a speaker. I, I've considered all those. I, I'm not convinced. I would say to each one of those, I kind of doubt it. Not only because it doesn't seem to match the portrait that the New Testament paints of Paul, but also because I think it makes much more sense to take the phrase fear and trembling, or fear and much trembling, and give it the meaning that it has elsewhere in the Bible, which is a healthy reverence and holy fear of God. Exodus 20.18 Now when the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off. Philippians 2.12, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And then later on in the second letter, 2 Corinthians 7.1, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear 
of God. So when we look at the rest of the Bible, we see this phrase, fear and fear and trembling. That, that matches what Paul's trying to communicate here. Remember the immediate context. Remember the point he's trying to make. He's trying to teach them, look, I'm not like the rest of those speakers. In contrast to them, this is how I came. So he's saying, I'm, I'm not that. I'm not, uh, I'm not the worldly speaker. I'm not, I'm not the professional speakers that were projecting confidence and strength. They wanted to be known as powerful speakers who could command the attention of audiences. And uh, there was this competitive nature then about the professional speakers. There was this uh, desire to always one-up one another and, uh, and be on top. And they were... They were prideful. They walked with a kind of a self-assured swagger. They were peacocking their skills around anyone who would watch. Paul says, that's not how I came. Instead, I came with fear and trembling. I came in humility. I came in submission to Christ. I came without pride in, in anything of myself. He was missing that hallmark arrogant smugness that characterized every other professional speaker and instead he came in a holy reverent fear of God. What a contrast. This is a teaching point for the raw Christians. He's saying, look, I've, I've dropped the worldliness, you drop it. Knock it off. Just stop. Once again, we have to wonder, are they getting it yet? Are they unlearning it? Verse 4, and my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom. We talked about this last week. The cross message did not receive a warm welcome, did not appear attractive to the world. It's not skilled speech. It's not what people expect when they hear professional speakers. Uh, it didn't persuade people with technique and emotional enticement like these people did because that's short-lived. That's not genuine. Instead, Paul's saying, I, I got out of the way. I, I just removed myself, I delivered the message as God gave it to me, and I let the Holy Spirit convict people, call people, lead them to repentance and belief. That was my role. That's all I did. Verse 5, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. True faith must be built upon true conversion. It's impossible to create true faith. It's impossible to create repentance, true repentance. It can't be manufactured. It's impossible to create the, the right, kind of dial in the right amount of circumstances so that people will, will sure, surely come to faith. That's not possible. You cannot elicit faith in Christ through worldly means. So to sum up, Paul is saying, I myself do not operate, operate like the world. My ministry isn't characterized by worldly standards, by worldly thinking, by worldly methods. I did not conduct myself according to worldly standards, and neither will you, because you are in Christ now. You need to unlearn that worldliness. Well, I hope it's clear by now that, that this was an important topic to Paul. He wants them to unlearn worldliness. Not only has it already caused divisions in the church, but if allowed to continue, 
It can lead them away from the gospel message. It, it can lead them away from Jesus Christ. And so Paul is on it. Someone could easily make the argument that this is the most important topic that he will address in the book of 1 Corinthians. If we want to break it down simply by how much ink he devotes to it, there are 16 chapters of 1 Corinthians, and he takes up four addressing this topic. It started off with the divisions, it's continuing now with the, with the unlearning of the worldliness, but if you look down at the bottom of chapter 2, he's still talking about, um, or excuse me, the beginning of chapter 3, uh, he's still talking about, I follow Paul and I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? He's still talking about it. If you continue on, even at the end of chapter 3, Apollos or Cephas, whether or not it's, it's any one of those, back over in chapter 4, verse 15, he's saying, uh, for though you have many, uh, you have countless guides in Christ, he's still talking about the first four chapters. It's not until chapter 5 that he says, it's actually reported. Okay, now we're starting on a different thing, but he spends four chapters unworldliness and their need to unlearn it. He's going to weave some other things in here that, that we draw out correct doctrine from, but it's one topic. Chapters 1 through 4. And if we go by total verse count, it's even more than 25%. So Paul spends over a quarter of this letter addressing worldliness. Worldly standards. Worldly thinking. And he's telling them, you've got to unlearn that. It's going, to bring, it's going to be your destruction. You've got to let go. Now there is a reason for placing such importance on worldliness. Worldliness is apparent with many children. If they continue to adopt a worldly attitude towards the speakers, they're going to continue to have divisions among the church. If they adopt a worldly mindset, then they're going to be tempted to view the gospel through a worldly lens. And they're going to be tempted to soften it and round out those hard edges so it's more acceptable to the world. If they continue a worldly mindset, then they're going to take a worldly approach to marriage and a worldly approach to sexuality and a worldly approach to every other thing that's going to come up in this book. That's why, that's one of the primary reasons. It's also the first thing he attacks in his address to them. Notice that. This is before anything else. Worldliness. You've got to get on top of that. So let's clarify what we mean. I, I think we should have a sense of it by now, but I want to describe it. Worldliness is a moral and philosophical set of ideas, values, desires, and principles that stand in opposition to God and his word, a way of life and thought that remains fixed on the unspiritual, the here and now, and the world. Worldliness is a moral and philosophical set of ideas, values, and desires, and principles that stand in opposition to God and his word, a way of life and thought that remains fixed on the unspiritual, the here and now, and the world. That's what we're talking about. It's a system. It's a way of looking at things. It's a way of understanding the world. To be worldly is to accept and live by the world's system. To accept its presuppositions, to accept its beliefs, and to live by them. And it can be intentional or unintentional, as is the case, it appears, with the believers in Corinth. It does not seem like they are intentionally choosing worldliness. 
He still addresses them as brothers and sisters. He's being very patient with them. This doesn't seem like they completely understand what they're doing and they are choosing the world and denying Christ. That's, that's not the picture here. This is excess baggage. This is, the, this is the pencil group that they learn as a preschooler. And they, they just are having a hard time shifting away from it. It's, it seems to be unintentional. We really shouldn't be surprised that they're having a hard time with it. Now this teaching isn't just for first century of our Christians, it's for people today, it's for the church today. It's a timeless topic, it's actually highly relevant for the church today for two reasons. Number one, anyone coming to Christ today is going to look very similar to someone coming to Christ in first century Corinth. Because if you've been immersed and raised in this culture, Consider just for a moment, if you don't have any Christian background, if, if your parents were not in Christ, if, you, if you've never been connected to a faithful church, if you've never uh, heard the things of God, if all you've had is the world's messaging your whole life, and you come to Christ now, you're going to be raw. You're going to look very similar to these first century Christians. So it's, it's very timely. You're going to have a lot of unlearning to do. So number one, new believers coming to Christ today are in a similar boat. And number two, it's to call the mature believers, those who have been in Christ for several years, maybe even decades, to resist conforming to the world. Because there is immense pressure right now on the church, on believers, to conform to worldliness in a way that we've not seen in our lifetime. I remember talking to some older saints and they would say something like this. It's not as bad as you make it seem. Every generation thinks that this generation is getting worse than the last generation. Let me tell you something. It was worse when we were your age. We thought things were falling apart. It's, it's, it's not any worse. It's just different. But trust me, we'll get through it. It's, it's no big deal. It's not as bad as you're painting the picture. To this I would reply, no, it's worse. It is worse. I think we can all tell at this point, it's not just our generation's limited perspective. The, the world is getting increasingly away from Christ. We are, we are witnessing a departure from the things of God and the truth of God on an unprecedented level. It, it, the worldliness today is not just present as it's always been. It is being pushed upon us aggressively. It is being pushed upon our children aggressively. And so, no, I would reply, no, I'm sorry. It's not the same. It's worse. So for both of those reasons, for new believers and for the immense pressure that's being put on the church, it's still a timely topic. The Bible has a lot to say about worldliness. We're going to look at a few cross-references. Romans 12, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Colossians 3, 2, set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on the earth or the world. 
For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Notice, first of all, just a very quick side note, the Corinthians verse, same reason that Paul gives in verse 30, you are in Christ. Therefore, do not conform to worldliness. Unlearn that, if you've learned it. Don't, don't give in to it. Both verses, the, the Romans and the Colossians verse, make a, bring, bring a call to reject worldliness, and both verses make reference to the mind. This is telling us if we want to, re, if we want to unlearn or if we want to resist conforming to worldliness, the battleground is the mind. The battleground is the mind. So the question that we can ask ourselves is, what are we setting before our minds? What are we setting our minds on on a day-to-day, weekly basis? Weekly worship and, and faithful biblical tre- preaching, I hope, yes. Maybe uh, some, some Bible reading during the week as well, some intake of the Bible. I hope, that's a good thing. Solid Christian fellowship, getting together with other brothers and sisters and comparing notes and encouraging one another and fighting our spiritual battles together, yes, I hope so. Devotions with with your spouse or with your children, some Bible reading together, yes. Some prayer together, I hope so. But is that it? I mean, here's where the rubber meets the road. It's one thing to to amen the Romans and the Colossians first and say, yeah, I believe that. Set minds on the things that are above. But we have to ask ourselves, how much worldly messaging, how much worldly content are we setting before our eyes during the week? We're setting this much of the things of God. How much of, of worldliness are we setting before us? How much time do we spend on our phones scrolling through worldly content? How much, how much messaging are, are we taking in as we watch the computer or the TV? What's the ratio? Yeah, if we just go by time spent on these things, is it two to one? Worldliness to, to the things of God? Is it three to one? Should it even be one to one? What are we setting our minds on every day? What is the message we, we hear and see? Is it, is it something, is the messaging sinful? Uh, does it normalize or celebrate sin? Does it contradict God's word? There, there is very little content produced by the world that is any good for the believer today. There just is very little. And it's everywhere. It's on billboards. We, on your way into work, you probably see it. What's the messaging that's coming through there? Do you ever find yourself watching something and think to yourself, they just took the Lord's name in vain? Oh, well, I'll just keep watching because it's funny. Or uh, they just just sent a sexual and moral message. That's okay. My kids are old enough. They know the difference. I don't have to stop this or turn it off or even have a conversation about it. We've talked about it before. What are we setting before our eyes? Because whatever we set before our eyes, that's what we're setting our minds on. And it's very difficult to unlearn or resist conforming to worldliness if we're feeding our mind worldliness. This isn't legalism. This is just a practical application of Scripture. It says, set your mind on things that are above, not on things 
that are on the earth. So we need to ask ourselves, what are we setting before our eyes? You know, in the, in the uh, audiovisual world, the tech world, they have something called a, a mixer. And it works like this. It's a, it's a component, electronic component, and they have signal A coming on one side and signal B coming on the other side and on a different channel, and they're going at the same time. They're simultaneous. But there's a slider switch, and if you have it all the way over here, you just hear signal A, and you can't hear any of signal B. And if it's all the way over here, it's just signal B and no signal A. But if you put it in the middle, it's 50-50. And it's an easy way to transition from one signal to the other. It's a very smooth transition. Think of signal A as the things of God. Scripture. Holiness. B is worldliness. The messaging that the world's sending out. Where's our slider scale? Where's that at? And the, the one practical application that I hope we can take away, the challenge is this. Let's make some concrete choices this week. Let's do something, at least one thing, to move that slider switch over towards the things of God. One action step that we can take. First John 2, 15-17 says this, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, is not from the Father, but it's from the world. Yes, the world, the world, those things are from the world. Those are the things that the world desires. The flesh, the eyes, pride of life. Sure, we get that. This is a call to, to, to remove, to get far away from worldliness. But look what also it says. It says, if you love the world, then you don't love the Father. The, the love of the Father is not in him. If, if you love the world, then you're not right with God. So let's draw a distinction. This, this is not talking about the raw Christians. These, these guys are in Christ, and they're, they're unintentionally hanging on to that worldliness that they've learned their entire life. So that, this verse is not talking about them. This verse is talking about those that are intentionally and purposely saying, I see what the choice is. There's Christ and there's the world. And I'm choosing the world. I like this a little too much to say no to it forever. So Jesus, you're going to have to wait. I'm going to stay here. So it's a warning. It's a warning that says, do not set your heart on the things of the world. If, if, you, if you make that choice, if you say, I'm... I know what worldliness is and I'm, I'm going for it. You're not in Christ. The Spirit of Christ does not lead people away from Christ. So it's a warning. There was a man, uh, a pastor, who told the story of, of witnessing to a friend of his uh, someone he'd met and he developed a relationship with, and they were an unbeliever. And he was, you know, through different conversations, he was trying to lead him to Christ. And he was, he was explaining the things of God to him and explaining how to repent and believe. And he, he shared the gospel multiple times. And the guy said, "Yeah, no, I, I appreciate it. I get that." And he said, "All right, here, let me let me do this." And he did the old diagram. So he, he drew the cliff over here and the cliff over here with the cross in the middle, the bridge cross. And he said, "Okay, over here is." Uh, unforgiven. You're, you're not in Christ. You're, 
you're, you're bound for hell. Over here is in Christ. You're forgiven. You're saved. And you're going to be with God forever. You've, brought to, you've been brought to new life. He says, that, that's the difference. He said, where are you right now? And the man said, well, uh, yeah, uh, I see what you're saying. And I, it's not that I disagree with anything you're telling me. I, I get that. And I think that's all good. I'm just, I don't know if I'm there yet. And uh, I think I'm here. I'm in the middle. I'm starting to get there, but I don't think I'm there yet. And the pastor said, there is no metal. There's no metal. You're, you're either over here or over here. So which is it? And I said, oh, all right. Uh, and, and he'd been, and, and he was up front, and, and he just wasn't there yet. So he said, okay, I guess I'm over here. And the pastor said, I agree. I think that's where you're at. Through, through conversations that they had had, they knew that this man was, was hanging out in the world. He was still nursing a few sins that, that he just wasn't ready to let go of. They talked specifically about things, about some, some things that he just wasn't ready to let go of his life. He said, yeah, I agree. I think you're over here, but you don't have to be. You don't have to remain there. And he explained the gospel one more time. Repent of your sin. Turn to Jesus Christ in faith. I promise you on the authority of Scripture, if you turn from your sin and put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, God will accept you, He will forgive you of your sin, and He will give you a new heart and new desires so you won't want to live in the world anymore. He will create new life, create a new heart in you so that you will desire the things of God. And listen closely, the only way this is possible is because Jesus did it on your behalf. You don't have to clean up your life before you come to Christ. You don't have to get rid of all that stuff before you come to Him. Repent and turn to Him. He will clean you. It's like the old, the old fisherman example. He doesn't clean the fish and then catch them. He catches the fish and then he cleans them. Turn to faith in Jesus Christ. His blood paid for your sin and His righteousness was secured in your behalf. It's through faith that, that is applied to you. Turn to Jesus. Because there is no middle. There's no middle when it comes to worldliness either. We either love the world or we love Christ. Is there any form of worldliness or worldly thinking that we need to unlearn? What's our, what's our pencil grip? What, what's something that we've learned and that we need to unlearn if we're going to move forward in our discipleship of Jesus Christ? And, and if we're honest, let's ask ourselves this. Is there anything in our hearts and our minds that we find ourselves standing over here with the world? Is there an issue out there? Is there a worldview issue where we're standing over here and we find ourselves in agreement with our unbelieving friends more than we are in agreement with our believers? And so that's an issue. Pay attention to that. What are we setting before our eyes and therefore setting our minds on? What are we filling our discretionary time with? Again, this isn't legalism. Legalism won't be making a list of things you can and can't do. This is applying scripture. What are we setting before our eyes? Worldly messages or the things of God? Let's move that slider switch over to the things of God. 25%, over 25% of this letter is dedicated to getting the Corinthian raw believers to see they need to unlearn worldliness. It's that important. 
and it feeds into all these other issues that he's going to be addressing in the book. God calls us to his son. He also calls us to walk in holiness and to unlearn worldliness. Amen. Father, we thank you that Jesus secured the righteousness that we deserve. Or excuse me, that, that, that we require. We don't deserve it. That's the whole point. We're thankful that Jesus secured the righteousness that we require to be made right with you. It's not through our own doing. And Father, we plainly and simply come before you this morning and say, we need help. We need help unlearning worldliness. We need help resisting the pressure from the world. We need help to cultivate Godly habits of setting our minds on the things of God, not on the things of this world. So Father, we ask for your help, and we trust that you will answer this prayer. We pray in your Son's name. Amen.